0: Hello, and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Tom Murphy, Head of Natural Capital at QIC, and I'm pleased to bring the first episode of our new Carbon, Cattle and Climate QPod series. In this series, we bring you conversations with leaders in the natural capital and ag industry to help answer your burning questions around the issues. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Morell. Managing Director of Packhorse Pastoral Company. Packhorse has been, you know, a real pioneer in leveraging natural capital projects to bolster more traditional agricultural operations. QRC was fortunate enough to acquire one of Packhorse's properties, Stewart's Creek, near Roma, Queensland, just recently, to build out our own natural capital platform. So thanks for joining me today, Jeff. Look, your your record speaks for itself in this industry. You're really a legend in this industry. You, you've spanned a career across some of the most iconic pastoral operations in Australia uh, in terms of Stanbroke, in terms of Kidman, GM of Paraway, and obviously more recently with Packhorse. Could you give us just a bit of an overview of that background and how it led you to Packhorse uh, and this whole sort of, call it regenerative ag, natural capital um, agricultural strategies?
1: Thanks, Tom, and and thanks for the opportunity to to join you on on this journey that that you guys are undertaking that that Mm. is so important. I think, look, obviously grew up on the land, started in North northwest Queensland, and, uh, and then moved to Tassie when I was about 12. For perspective, parents owned 70,000 acres in in northwest mm-hmm. Queensland. Went to Tassie and bought 320. So yeah, yeah. went from red meat production, sheep and cattle, to uh, driving those green things mm-hmm. with steering wheels yeah. in them, you know, so. so a lot, <laughs> lot more rain, though. <laughs> a lot more rain and uh, a lot cooler climate. So. Yeah. So I finished school and when I finished school I, I joined Stanbroke partial Company as a as a young eighteen year old, I started jackarooing for, for them and had a had a twenty plus year career with Stanbroke. and I think yeah, you know, it was really interesting because I had friends that had gone and and sort of done other things to leverage into their own businesses and that and that type of thing. I think the thing that Stanbroke gave me, the thing that I realized early, was that the opportunities that were afforded us to develop, to influence at scale, mm. was stuff that my my friends weren't getting. Like, they were, they were yeah. working for the bank
0: yeah. and they yeah. were
1: working out how to get a feed each day. So mm. that sort of set the career path for me at an early age to realise where I wanted to get to and where I wanted to be. So that was that was part of the journey. I've been so fortunate to work for, for as you mentioned, mm. some of Australia's most iconic cattle companies um, through that process. So. Yeah, you know, that led us into the opportunity. Then with Macquarie and Paraway, yep. um, start building out that portfolio, and I think that was a was a unique opportunity. Stepping out of Helen Springs in the middle of the Northern Territory into the boardroom in CBD Sydney with Macquarie,
0: mm. taking it, some adjusting. Well, yeah, no, it took them a
1: while <laughs> it to took adjust. A while, I'm yeah, sure it, so you know, um, and but it was a great great experience. And then, you know, building that platform and working out how we actually drive the change and it's the old adage, right? It comes back to the people Mm. piece. So breaking all that down and getting on a journey from a traditional farm manager to Mm. a business manager Mm. was critical in the success of that that organisation. So spent 10 years going through that. It built its own reputation. The people built its own brand and it it had significant recognition in the industry. And then the Pack Horse Opportunity came along and Tom... Was a uh, Tom Strain, our, our co-founder, was a was a good friend of mine. He'd actually worked for me back in yes, the Stanbroke yes, era, yeah, right. and uh, and so you know when the opportunity arose and he was talking about doing something different, then the timing was right then to step into the regen space here yep. with an opportunity to do something at scale. Yep, so yep. so it, so there's alignment there. He had some some associates that were also aligned in that thinking. And, and we started on the journey, you know. Yeah. So, so I think the, for, for us, it, it was about doing this at scale, doing it differently. And, and having a lifetime in the industry in corporate ag, mm. you get to see the good, bad, and ugly of yeah. it all. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, there's been plenty of dry gullies, there's been plenty of yeah. dry periods, there's been plenty of great periods. But understanding the influence you have over those periods and how you come out of those yep. is critical, and this is where the regenate piece comes into fold, and, and how yep. important it is to set these businesses up right. So, yep. so that was the journey that led us to Packhorse, and then, you know, I, what I've said to everyone is that you know our intent here, our integrity and our transparency, is about making the land and the environment that we're working on better. Yeah. We're really fortunate to have a byproduct called carbon sequestration that's monetised. Yeah. So, but the focus for the business was always as custodians of the land to be actually making it better for the next generation. So so I think this gets into then the the whole conversation around all the different frameworks and structures. Yeah. At the end of the day, everything we do has to be continually accretive. Mm. if we're going to provide food for 10 billion people by 2050 then whatever we're doing has to be a credit we have to produce more food off less land we have to provide much higher nutri- nutritious food mm. than we currently do so that we need less of it yep. and and this and regen pays a major part in it you know so so that's part yeah. of the journey, and where we where we got to with Packhorse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's quite an amazing journey, and in many ways, your career sort of has covered the full span. I think of that whole agricultural community, in a sense, from traditional sort of family owned, large scale farming, to corporate agriculture, and now you know call it regenerative, natural capital strategy applied to agriculture and how that, that was, re- was really, you know, one of the, you know, an old movement in terms of regenerative ag, hmm. but it's now has been seen as part of this whole natural capital markets, carbon sequestration, carbon credits, and a solution to climate change and climate solutions. So we've sort of, we've now sort of increasingly seen agriculture come to a very central player in this whole climate change, climate solutions piece. and. And i'm interested in your thoughts on why agriculture is central to that climate solution
1: yeah it's a great question as a as a bushy and and having experience for all that we like to keep things simple right so so it for me it's basic right soil health equals earth health when you have a look at what percentage of the earth agriculture is conducted over then there's a huge responsibility here for the custodians of that country to be focused on soil health, because if we focus on that, get that right, then the earth health improves, and that's the Look bit that's going himself. to impact impact climate change, right? So, yeah. there's is there a right or wrong way? There's definitely wrong ways to do it, and I, you know, through my career, I've been fortunate enough to experience some of those. I think it, the one of the difficulties we've got is define it you know and, and one of the yeah. things that we when we started packhorse and we started looking for was the regen scorecard
0: mm.
1: right so you know to create change we need investment. and when you want to go and communicate to investors about your regen scorecard and how you're transitioning, there's not one out there. So that you know there's definitely frameworks out there that are aligned with practices and principles that help improve soil health. And, and I think it's important that as a, as a producer, as a land custodian, you know, as a landowner, that you align yourselves with one of those mechanisms that can yep. show the improvement you're making. Because you know, yep. in our food supply chain, that's going to be critical in the future.
0: No, I, I agree. And I think you know it's interesting for investors out there, for, corporate, for corporates out there, They've got a lot of different choices to make in terms of their whole nze nature positive strategies and they can go down the whole sort of you know the solar the wind um, you know reductions of emissions they can go down to you know fuel efficient cleaner fuels or they can go down to that nature-based solutions which is investing in the land to help achieve some of these solutions in terms of carbon sequestration and if you look at it in terms of um, nature positive more improved biodiversity etc and i think that nature-based solutions choice, where you can not only lower emissions, capture sequestration, but you can also be positive for nature, and integrated into uh, you know a community yeah. integrated into a traditional economy that I think is now becoming you know more and more of a focus for these investors and for these corporates and that 's where agriculture I think plays a central piece because as you said, over fifty percent of land in the world is covered by agricultural production so logistically there's no other way to work around it you have to work with farming you have to work with farmers but Whereas farming's been a problem in the past for many of these yep. um, natural issues and you know degradation of nature, et cetera, it's also gonna be the solution going forward. And I think that's key.
1: There's multiple parts to that, right? Mm. The real conversations have to happen. Solar panels and electric cars still use rare earth minerals that have got to be mined yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah. Right, so so what is the actual footprint of those you know they're just focused on one aspect and that's fossil fuel usage right so yep. but are we talking about the whole cycle here and then and then that turns into all the different methodologies we've got at the moment and and are they truly accretive forever yep to what we need to do yep. to. Provide how sustainable food?
0: are these methodologies for not only nature positive outcomes carbon sequestration
1: but for food production for humanity and fiber production For humanity yep. right yep. so so I think that's, you know, it's interesting. I think there's lots of conversations yet to be had. And I mm. think when you look at the HIR projects, I think their initiative's right. But at the end of those projects... How do
0: you manage them going forward?
1: How man? do we manage them going forward? What's yep. the value? What do we do? What's the mechanisms? No one's talking about that yet, mm. you know. Do we just end up with all this ring fence country that someone has to manage? No
0: one's controlling
1: it. No, You know, because if it's not managed, it's going to burn. Yep. And yep. and so
0: and, and that goes to the heart of an issue and, and it's interesting you'll get a lot of advocates of these methodologies to say, listen, there's just some land there that we do not want anyone to touch. You know, it's unique from a biodiversity perspective, yep. from a nature perspective. So let's ring fence it, nobody touch, no one develops it, and we move on to these other but you always have to manage land. Land was always managed, whether it was managed by the indigenous owners or not. Yep. In terms of weed, in terms of fire, in terms of pests. So all these methodologies have to work with. Management of long-term sustainable practices,
1: and I think that leads to the you know the common sense approach here is to actually stack all these together mm. to have the right outcome environmentally and for biodiversity. Yeah. We we need the three or four different methodologies working together
0: mm.
1: to to get the right outcome and to have that as a sustainable framework for us moving forward in in this space. So it's interesting as a conversation at the moment around soil carbon sequestration and where whether those rates are due to climate or management yep. and and how do we you know, how do we move beyond we that, that yep. yeah how do we move beyond that conversation and i think the the relative part here is that there's simple solutions right we don't have to get to a position where we're actually arguing over the pure science of it. It's mm. just for example in a soil carbon project like you got at Stewart's Creek, it's pretty easy just to fence off a piece of land there that's, that doesn't have to be really big, but mm. just have a look at what the climate does to that piece of yes, land over yes, ten years yes. versus have your a management. Con-
0: have a control. Have a control, control there. Per- and yeah. it's
1: and it's and then we've got a path forward and yeah. yeah. And the issue we got is that all these things take time. Yeah. You know, we've got we're very much coming up against the target deadlines that have been set in yeah. place. And you for know, we for NZE
0: and Nature Positive so they, now.
1: They're all twenty thirty, twenty fifty is going to come around pretty quick. They're going to come around real real quick. You know? And the ability to make the change at scale mm, takes, takes time. Yeah. You know, and you don't if you're talking about regenerative practices, really it's five years before you start seeing a difference. Yeah. And it's ten years before you actually get the real accretive advantage, you know, so... And investors so,
0: won't put money into unless they're confident yeah, that, right. that they can deliver on the methodology and the methodologies
1: are accepted. Are accepted. Are accepted. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think it's a healthy time to be having conversations about all these methodologies, what they mean. Yeah, they're driven by financial markets. We mm. have to be able to prove to investors there's confidence in these methodologies yeah. that they're transparent, robust systems that they can invest in with confidence.
0: Just sort of going back to that early journey, and particularly, say, with you and Tom with Packhorse, you know, I'm sure you, you know, as an early adopter, as a you know, very high-profile advocate of regenerative ag, carbon sequestration within traditional ag operations, you would have been met with a lot of scrutiny, with a lot of early, you know, I guess, tension from a traditional ag community as to you know, what you were doing, Respected members of the agricultural community pushing into what they, many would see as very innovative, untested areas. How? What were the sort of learnings that you took away from that? You know, how to integrate with the traditional ag community, how to educate, inform, and move forward.
1: Yeah, look, great question. I think there were definitely peers in the industry asking, <laughs> asking questions. What um, are you doing? Yeah, like, <laughs> Marille, what are you up to? Um, sure. But I think, I think more importantly, the thing is that. It then, it comes back to this whole starting piece, right? So intent, Mm. integrity and transparency, right? We have enough knowledge to know that regenerative practices make a difference to soil health. So, you know, getting a group of people together to do that at scale, focused on that, was the the purpose. The byproduct out of all of that were the soil carbon sequestration credits that would become available for registered projects. We never included any of that in our financial modelling. That was always a, you know, yes, we showed investors, but that's the, if we get all this right, here's some of the accretive stuff that's available. I think one of the important things as these conversations are evolving around insetting and what you do, you know, I would be saying to people that we don't know where we're going to be in the next five years. Mm. Uh, If you're getting credits, Mm. I'd be saying balance sheet them. Yep. Because you know if you're producing red meat or some primary production in Australia where we have always been price takers, mm. somewhere down the line, if you don't rock up at that sale point mm. with a product that has some sort of sustainability, biodiversity, yeah, emissions, zero, yeah. whatever yeah, it is, credential deposits, yeah. with it, yep. then the process is not going to be paying you for it. You know, it's, yep. it's it'll be severely discounted, or it won't have market access. So, so it's important for people to start measuring now. Whatever you're doing, start measuring now, yeah. and and show, you know, have the ability to be able to show what you've done to make a difference in your in your businesses. From a ho- holistic point of view around natural capital and biodiversity, I think they're the two key things. You know,
0: that, I completely agree, and it's interesting that because these markets have emerged, because there's now potential for revenue to be generated from credits carbon increasingly now, they're looking at how do we develop biodiversity credits. You know, it's, you sometimes get the cart before the horse and you talk about this whole regenerative practices, uh, to serve a carbon credit stream, whereas whereas there was regenerative agriculture long before there were long carbon long credits, and the real positives are really the resilience and the productivity that it, that it develops in your own agricultural production, because that's the long term yeah, benefit yeah, that yeah. that that really creates the value in the end. And the credits are uh, they're uh, almost a in a sense a means to an end, but they're not the final.
1: No, that's right. Consideration. And we've got challenges, right, because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot of these projects really are are limited to soil type and rainfall. Yeah, forty-seven percent of Australia is grazing country that doesn't have the rainfall or yeah. soil types to yeah. really attribute to that. So, this is where the um, the beef sustainability framework and how we build a mechanism around that to show that we're increasing sustainability. Like I think both sustainability and regen ag are bastardised terms. Yeah. in a sense, yes. right? Because. Yeah, it's sustainability means sustaining the status quo, right? Mm. We we can't do that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we have to increase sustainability, yeah. and how do you show that? And and that starts with measuring. Mm. You know, I think you've got to start with an understanding of where your baseline is at in the business. We don't have all the data yet, but as this market evolves and as everything emerges, we're going to get the data to be able to say what's achievable here, you know. So if you're in Central Australia on 200mm rainfall, you want to increase sustainability. You know, where are the benchmarks here to say what's achievable, what can be done, you know, that sort of thing. So we've got a lot of work to do yet. And I think that, you know, the speed of which we can move as a government is critical, right, Mm. because the financial mechanisms and marketplace are going to drive the demand. Mm. We've already got the safeguard mechanism in place. Yeah. We don't have the supply. Yeah. Yep. Right, so That's right. the the immediate, and a supply takes time. A supply takes time, mm. you know, this is the challenge with it all, right? And so the bit that I'm always wary about is forward selling a supply that you don't have mm. that is so critical to climate yeah. outcomes yeah. and management and you know that's the that's the challenge we're going to have moving forward about how we make this system robust and, and uh you know get, get confidence in it so yeah. investors can come in here and uh, yeah. they're going to get the right outcome.
0: Jeff you know it's interesting you you talk around in you know, the need for rigor and transparency uh, within the framework, within the methodologies, um, you know, where that can be, uh, you know, a government backed, government audited uh, framework, even better for investors and the importance of data for investors. So, you know, and I see this, this whole movement at the moment towards trying to improve that data, refine that data, not just with carbon measurement, but now increasingly with biodiversity, you know, how do you unitize biodiversity? Um, it's easier to have a unit of carbon than it is to have a unit of, of, of biodiversity improvement. And my view is, and I'm sure yours is as well, we'll get there, uh, just as we did with carbon. However, you know, it's interesting on what investors want, because when we talk about natural capital and agriculture, and you look at the, the thematic and the history of an institutional <coughs> investment in agriculture, and now natural capital, you know, the trend has always been within investment in ag, particularly by the North Americans, you know, the Europeans, and and the Asians, less so in Australia, which is interesting, but has been into, you know, more sort of cropping orientated investment. And timber. And, you know, pastoral cattle has been really, other than say Canadians of late, has been sort of a, you know, further down the pole in terms of that scale investment that follows. But, but you know, PACORS went very boldly in promoting pastoral as a key asset class for this theme in terms of natural capital carbon uh, within an agricultural production. So, can you talk around that? You know, why pastoral? What are the benefits of pastoral versus other commodities when it comes to regenerative ag and natural capital?
1: yeah i think it's scalability right mm. so par- partial gives you that straight away you know the traditional investments into to timber and cropping it, it's you can see it mm. right like yeah. it's sitting above the ground yeah right carbons under there that no one can see so be able to give people confidence that, that what they've invested in is growing mm. It's real. pretty easy. It's written real. Yeah. It's pretty easy to show, right? Yeah. Like, you know, here's a bear paddock, here's the crop, here's the plantation, here it is at five yeah. years of age. So, yeah. so very visible mm. and, and gives people confidence that it's, it's growing. You know, with pastoral and, and, and the issues we've got there with ASOR carbon is that mm. you can't see it, mm. right? So you're relying on the government framework and, and audit process yeah. to credit the
0: yes, producer, the rigor the, around the, them, the
1: around Yeah. So that's that's the first one. The second one is then, you know, the biodiversity piece, right? So at Stewarts Creek, we baseline the biodiversity there because we believe that's where mm. markets are going to lead us, right? Mm. And and that it's expensive. We've got to find ways that we can do that more cost effectively because we're not going to get uptake mm. with it at, at mm. the current cost yep. levels it's at. Yeah. But for us, it was that it came back to that piece of, of integrity and transparency, right? Mm. So, you know, if we're if we're saying that we're here to make a difference at scale and we want to influence biodiversity, how do you how do you show that? Mm. Measure it, mm. right? So, yeah. for us, that opportunity to do something at scale couples both food production and the environmental piece together. This land security, food security piece is critical to some investors. So being able to have that part of the metric then as well as have an influence in environmental outcomes was key to to the thematic. So that, you know, and then the pastoral piece led us to that scale. Mm. You know, I was quite often asked, would we entertain other red meats in that, process yeah. as in ghost and ship definitely you know definitely, I think yeah. it's part of that whole picture that, that fits together you know so for us the, the conversations we had around it were about what part of the portfolio would be able to access soil carbon accues yep What part would be able to, at some point in the future, access biodiversity and sustainability credentials, and building that portfolio out to be balanced and 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 at scale.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think what what pastoral offers, as you say, is scale. You know, enormous amount of land covered by private pastoral properties, enormous amount of biodiversity within that and a management of that biodiversity. You know, it was interesting on the NAPCO properties with Australian Wildlife Conservancy as a partnership between NAPCO and uh, AWC and, you know, they were looking at uh, bilby populations, particularly within that channel country properties. And, you know, they started to make the observation that bilbies were thriving in where the cattle were being managed. And you know, so much of that had to do with the fact because the land was being managed because pest and weed and uh, and fire. So there was this really integration between mm. you know that ag productivity from a pastoral perspective and and biodiversity improvement. And I think that management piece is gonna be critical in the biodiversity methodologies that start to rise. That's right.
1: It's critical, right? And I, I was uh, fortunate enough to be yeah, you know, with mm. with Stanbroke when they took Diamond Town National Park yeah. for, for the bilbies, right? Yeah. yeah. So what happened when they took all the cattle out of the National yeah. Park? The bilbies shifted where all the cattle yeah. were. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's co-inhabitants pieces that we've yes. got to recognise and mm. understand how important they are mm. in, in all of it. And I think the the management of that landscape in those grazing environments has to be done with animals. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's too costly to do it mechanically. Yeah. There's not a return on it. Yeah. You know, so educating people to understand that yeah. and then how you execute on that and show the incremental gains that you're making along the way is going to be critical to the success of that broader part.
0: That's right. And I think, you know, the opposition would point to obviously, you know, different parts of land clearing are accepted, but that's now a lot more controlled than it used to be. Uh, but also the whole methane production piece of cattle, but, you know, the methane reduction technology that's now starting to develop in terms of feed supplements, etc., whether it's the or whether it's synthetic feed, uh, you know, is progressing very fast. And I, you know, in our view, that will be, uh, the technology's there, it's how do you distribute it across your, your herd. To your point, you know, it's, Very difficult to achieve large scale biodiversity impacts without integrating it within agricultural production.
1: Yeah, that's it. I think, you know, I have some concerns around modifiers. Yep. and just and it, it's only it's not from a science position. Yeah. I'm, I'm a yeah. ringer, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, but it is the fact that we are impacting an animal's biome system in some way. Do we know what? The, and we haven't
0: had long what, enough to haven't to, had long to to enough see to, to,
1: to see what what that is, is. You know, yeah. impact is the other challenge we've got is that to get that in broad scale grazing systems mm. is going to be with confidence that yeah. each animal is getting enough of whatever it is to make a difference. And then being
0: able to measure that, yeah. And
1: able to measure that and understand that is going to be really challenging. Mm. You know, there are some emerging technologies that are going to help us here, but at the end of the day, you've got to question whether the animals in our environment are the problem in the methane part or is it waste
0: that
1: is the The more fundamental
0: problem, yeah. The more
1: fundamental problem. And I think, yes, they're there. Yes, Mm. it is an issue. Yes, it is the gas that creates yeah. mm-hmm. the most warming effect, but it's a cyclic gas. That's right, yeah.
0: It has an, it
1: has a, an end date. has an end date, yeah. it has a, you know, so, you know, methane from cattle will increase if the cattle herd increases. Yep. You know, but if the cattle herd productivity increases and they're here for a shorter time, then the methane—that's right—in theory—that's right—improves yep. reduces. So, yep. so I think you know they're they're all they are going to be all parts of the solution. Yep. You know, I am a, a little bit nervous around you know when you think about Australia, for example, on its own, 28 million head of cattle. Yep. There's a million head of cattle in feed lots at one time. There's another million head yeah. in other systems. So yeah. for these modifiers, mm. we've got to get it to 26 million head of cattle yeah. in Australia, probably which 20-odd million are in these really extensive grazing systems. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think that you've got to come back to this holistic sort of view yeah. on it is that, is that protein that we're producing, the cleanest, greenest protein yeah. we can to feed, yeah. or what effects are these modifier is going to have. You mm. can't tell that over a three year science project. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think there's, you know, there's there's Yeah it's big questions. Big, we just gotta be we've got to be cautious about mm. where how we move here, what we do. But it is, you know, it is one of the mechanisms mm. that could have big influence. You know, yeah. So,
0: and I think the other thing too about large-scale pastoral operations is it gives you a breadth of methodologies that you can apply across. So it's not, it can be soil, it could be environmental planning, it could be savanna burning, it could be herd methodology, it could be, yep. uh, from a biodiversity perspective, biodiversity credits, from a reef perspective, reef water quality credits. So there's a there's a breadth. Of natural, call it natural capital markets that can be applied to pastoral. Whereas, if you just got a solid, you know, monocultured cropping operation, yep. there's only really a couple of yep. um, methodologies yep. that could be applied. So,
1: and, that, and that's what makes the ag space, when you talk about grazing at scale, mm. such a critical point for investors. Like the, mm. the opportunity to influence at scale here mm. is so much greater than in a little forestry block that's right. sitting down here. You yeah. know? So. So I think that you know, we've still got work to do around the frameworks and mechanisms to create investor confidence here. Um, we do. And, and, and it's important that the conversations that are happening in the media are looking for solutions. Yes. You know, so it's, these are emerging markets. They're going to mature, they're going to get more data, they'll become more robust as we move forward, but they're not going to move forward without investment.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's interesting some of the, and I would call it welcome scrutiny and rigour that's been applied to these methodologies has to happen because with every emerging market in any industry, that's what happens. It matures, it refines, the regulations and frameworks change over time. I think what's interesting is some of what would be seen as negative News flow around certain methodologies in terms of carbon has actually been from some of the real pioneers Mm. in these methodologies. (laughs) And which is, you know, it's ironic, but it also can have negative consequences. And the negative consequences are they're trying to refine the system, it gets portrayed very negatively in the media, and therefore people stop then investing or stop attempting these methodologies because of what they see as some public risk. Yeah, Whereas yeah. actually, you know, yeah. often the proponents of putting forward this scrutiny are actually some of the biggest supporters of the, of the whole movement.
1: That's right. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, right? Because when you think about the Australian landscape and how many private producers are custodians over it, we've got to convince them.
0: Yes, that's <laughs> right. right. That's like
1: right. so, and, and the way they're going to be convinced is by financial metrics, Yeah. right? Like if it's accretive to their bottom line in some way, then they're going to consider adoption. Yeah, and this comes back to the confidence, the and, confidence and, yeah. and, you clear know... Clear
0: frameworks. And-
1: clear frameworks and yeah. hurdle rates for the family farmer. Yeah. What what are the hurdle rates for a family farmer? Yeah. You know, is, is their lifestyle comfortable? Yeah. Do they need to shift? Do they need to change? You know, I've got lots of friends that are, you know, multi-generational farmers that will hand on heart say that they've been sustainable... Mm. for that generational period. They're still here and they're still operating. So we've got to be able to provide catalysts for change that focuses on that part of the market we need to change. Yes. And and that's going to be driven by financial institutions. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, that's great, Jeff. Well, thank you for the conversation.
1: Been a pleasure. We could
0: go on forever. (laughs) Look, to our listeners, if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to tune in to other episodes in our Cattle, Carbon and Climate Pod series available on QIC.com. I'm Tom Murphy and you're listening to Pod. Thanks for tuning in.